true for the rest of us, but Gabe, I'm sure you always, and I'm like, nah. Because hear me, if I don't know you or we've never met, now my name's Gabe and I'm one of the pastors here and you need to know I ask this question too. It's a question I wrestle with personally. Seriously, sometimes I wonder, what's the point <laughs> in all of this? And that's exactly why we've gone to the cheery, wonderful, life-uplifting book of Ecclesiastes, okay? That captures this idea of sometimes all the things we've put our hopes in, all the things we've put our dreams in, they go up in smoke. Life up in smoke. That's the title of this series. And you may find yourself asking the question, seriously, what's the point? And there's some key moments in our vocational or our work lives where you're going to ask it. One of the places you might ask it is right after you finish either high school or trade school or college or your master's program and you finally get into the job you thought you always wanted to do and you show up and you had these expectations, but this was your experience and you're like, oh my goodness, I hate this. I've spent so much money. I'm in so much debt and I hate everything about this. Like, what is the point? Okay. The difference between experience and expectation can be massive. And you think to yourself, what am I doing with my life? There can be a moment while you're doing your job or in your workforce for a significant period of time and change isn't happening quick enough or not at all. Or then suddenly you change and you ask seriously, what's the point of this work? This is the stuff that midlife crises are made of. This is the stuff that people ask when they start reaching retirement, when they're looking back over their life and their work, and they're like, seriously, what was the point of all of this? I'm coming towards the end of the last chapter of my life. What was all this worth, and what am I going to do with Seriously, what do I do here? And I love the main guy who's kind of guiding us through Ecclesiastes. He kind of reminds me, and maybe this is a caricature, but you guys stick with me anyway, he reminds me of like Clint Eastwood from Grand Tarantino, or not Grand Tarantino, uh, Grand Torino. There we go. Tarantino is a different kind of, <laughs> that reminds you first of the art exhibit that was at the beginning, um, but for different reasons. <sighs> but there, you find this guy, he kind of like, you almost feel like he's always talking to you through the grit of his teeth. He's like, man, you want to, I'll tell you about the height of my career. You know, it's like, oh. Ooh, you know, like you both are repelled and drawn in at the same time. Like, I just love, okay, this is not a part of the script and I'm already gonna get in trouble. But the, the reality is, is that I used to go when I was like in middle school and play chess with this older gentleman named Sonny. He lived with his sister. They were both in their 70s and no one else came around, but they were in my neighborhood and I'd mow their yard and I'd just hang out with Sonny listening to eight tracks. Uh, okay. And then we'd play chess, and he would just complain about life, and it was one of my favorite things. Um, <laughs> it's kind of what Ecclesiastes is like um, sometimes. Uh, and the main character here, he's known as Kohelet, so he's not the author of Ecclesiastes. And for some of you, this is going to be something that's so trivial you're not going to care, but I try to leave a little bit of nuggets for every different kind of person. So Kohelet, okay, if you're curious where the title Ecclesiastes comes from, stick with me. This is the transliteration of the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Kohelet. Okay, is that? Oh, I got a head nod from some folks. Oh, good. Okay, so Kohelet is the Hebrew title of this book. Then the Greek translated it in the LXX or the Septuagint for Jewish people who were part of the diaspora that were spread across the Roman Empire, who actually Greek became their primary language. And so the Hebrew scriptures were translated in Greek and it was translated into Ecclesiastes. And since we didn't know what else to do. Transliteration is you just take the same word and you just add English letters to it, okay? So in Greek, it's Ecclesiastes. In English, it's Ecclesiastes, okay? So we come to Kohelet. 
And, and really that title, that word means to gather. He's gathering all these different experiences. And sometimes you'll see he's called the preacher, sometimes the teacher. And he's seeking to guide us through his experiences. And frankly, this bro is difficult to follow sometimes, okay? So if you've ever read Ecclesiastes and you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, and you come with all this shame, and you're like, I must not be a good Christian, I must not be a good reader, I must not be good enough and fill in the blank, that's not true. He's just hard to follow sometimes. And it's not because he doesn't have good answers. It's because he doesn't give us easy answers. He invites us into the complexity of life, and therefore his answers come with complexity which I deeply appreciate about him. Now, the hard thing, or maybe the perceived hard thing from some folks, uh, is that he's exploring all of these claims that people project, that our world projects, that sometimes we ourselves deeply believe that the good life is summed up in this thing. And he invites us into the vulnerability of his journey. He doesn't give us the nice, tidy answers at the end. Instead, he invites us to be like, here's what I'm feeling. This is what I'm wrestling. And he's processing, and he invites us in to that processing, which can be really messy. And frankly, in some circles within the church would be discouraged. We come with confidence. We come with clarity. Well, Ecclesiastes is like, ah. And there's something really beautiful and healthy and good about that that we need. And frankly, I think that's why he's one of the most important voices for our culture today, for me today. A theologian by the name of Pat Kiefert, he makes this observation. I think he's captured what Kohelet is doing here. He says, no one learns from, from experience. <gasps> and he says, one learns only from experience one reflects upon and articulates. You can go through a lot of things in life and never process them, and that will not make you wise. That just makes you experienced. Significantly different, those two may be. Instead, he goes through these experiences and then he's processing them and then he seeks to articulate what he's processing. He's seeking to organize and process what it is he's explored. And he goes right today, we're going to see he goes right to the heart of many of our idols, many of our places where all of our hopes and our dreams are, our work. And really, our desire to be successful in our work. Because we have narratives in our world and in our culture that say what? If you just work hard enough, if you just work long enough, then you will arrive. You will get everything you've been looking for. You'll be satisfied. You'll be fulfilled. Just work hard enough. Don't stop. Don't start crying about it. Just work harder. Just work longer. And then you'll get it. So climb the corporate ladder. Sacrifice everything for success. And then you'll finally get your well-deserved outcome of peace wholeness. Well, Kohelet doesn't let us just sit in that. He challenges us. And that's why we all laughed when we said, this is the word of the Lord, because we're like, golly, Kohelet, right? We, that was knowing laughter around the room. And yet, for some of you, I, I recognize there are about two or three different audiences in here. For some of you, his words were like comfort. Because you're like, finally, someone who's naming my experience, and I don't have to feel shame about it. That's how I feel about my work right now. Thank you. I don't have to come in here and act like I put a smile on my face and feel like everything's fine. Thank you, Kohelet. God's word is validating your experience. It sees you. There are others of you who are actually doing really well at your work. And you're like, man, Kohelet's a downer. If he just kind of get his act together, right? He's challenging. Because this is meant to be someone who's lived a significant life. 
Whatever you think you've lived, he's lived longer. <laughs> and he's speaking over all of his experience. So he's challenging you. Or if you're in education and you're like, well, once I get my education, once I get in there, then he's like, be careful. Be careful what you're putting your hope. Be careful what you're chasing after. Because he's really, what we come to see is that Kohela is like the expert at work. Um, if you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, just as a reminder, we see that he's called the son of David. So he's a king who comes with great authority and power. And many believe that this was Solomon who writes this down, even though it's not explicit anywhere. Many believe that this was Solomon due to tradition. And here's what's fascinating. Solomon was the best at his work, okay? The absolute best. He gets the kingdom from his dad, David. And what does a king supposed to do? He's supposed to expand its borders, care for his people, and bring about well-being. The kingdom was the largest at Solomon's rule. The people were the best off that they were been. And here's the deal. God comes to him in a dream. And it's like, Solomon, if you want anything, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Whoa, this is like Aladdin kind of dynamic, you know, except he's, you know, not street rat, right? So he's the king. So he's already got a leg up. Man, this guy is crushing it. Talk about opportunities. And what does he say? He says, I want wisdom so that I can rule the people well. And God grants him that. And then then Israel enters into this golden age of like untold prosperity and security. I mean, it's the best that Israel ever was. Huge, massive, all these dynamics. And then he comes to process over his life after such massive success. And you know what his summary is? Spoiler alert, it's this. If your success is what makes you okay, you won't be okay. If your success has to be the thing that finally orders your internal world that brings you peace, that brings you wholeness, you'll never get there, ever. And he should know. So let's explore that together. Turn with me in your Bibles if you haven't already. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some on that back little podium or little table back there that you can take home. It's our gift to you. If you've got your Bible, you can pull out your Bible app and you can follow along there. But as we step into Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18, what we're going to see, and maybe you heard it too, is that Kohelet's emotions are kind of ratcheted up here. to like, no, they toned it up to 11, right? Like it's all the way up, all the way to 11. Some of you, that was a really obscure movie reference and probably went over most of your heads. Thank you for hanging with me anyway. Um, and what's so wonderful is that Nowhere in scripture do we see the demonization of these emotions. If you remember, if so, those of you who were able to join us with Aaron Mitchum last week during his church hurt and spiritual trauma seminar that we hosted here, he talked about the importance for emotions guiding us for what's going on under the hood in our hearts. We can either stuff them, which is not healthy. We can ignore them, which is not healthy. Or we can listen to them and say, where is this coming from? And follow the trail and begin to dissect it. And so here we've got emotions ratcheted up to 11, and we're going to dissect as to why that is the case, okay? And there are three different kind of realities we're going to see on display here, that if you make your success the thing that has to make you okay, you're going to be angry, you're going to be full of despair, and frankly, you'll be anxious. So let's look at that together. Um, look with me at Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18. First, if your work has to make you okay, and you'll be angry, you'll be angry at yourself, others, the world around you, and life itself. Look with me, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. 
man, that is a bad case of the Mondays. Like if I, I mean, ever come in the morning, I hate all of this. Like if I just showed up with our staff on Tuesday morning for staff meeting, I hate all of this, everything that we've done. It's like, whoa, boss is having a bad day. You know, it's like pastor's having a bad day. Dad's having a bad day. That is not a great situation, okay? This language of hate, this is intense. This isn't him like, you know, I'm a little frustrated. This project didn't work out. He's like, I hate it, all of it. And then he uses universal language, not like this part over here, that part, all of it. I hate every single bit of this work that I have been giving my life to. And then he ends it with, with that which is under the sun. So all the work that I have done on this planet, I abhor it. Sweet. <laughs> if you've never been in that situation, praise God today, right? And the reality is, when we come to our work, each and every one of us, we have some semblance of control, right? In some ways, shape, or form, we get to control whether we show up on time. We get to control how we show up to some degree to our workplace. We get to control whether we stay at a job or whether we transit. There's a lot that we do have control over, but there's also a point in every aspect of our job where we no longer have control. You write the email and you send it off. You're done. You've lost control. <laughs> you carry out a particular job for some 50, 60 years, and then either death takes you or retirement takes you or something ends that particular vocation, and you have to hand it off. You carry on a project, depending on your department, and then you've done your part of the project, and now you get to hand it on to the next department. And now they have to steward how it's cared for going forward. You lose control. There are a few things that can make us as angry as when we lose control, when we feel like we shouldn't. And here, he's bumping up against the fact that he doesn't have control. You coach someone, you build something, you lead an initiative, and then finally it's out of your hands. You see, the less control you have, the less opportunity you have to actually ensure what you believe is its success. And Solomon, remember, this, this bro, he's done extraordinary work as a king. He's extremely successful. He knows this all too well. Write down just somewhere 1 Kings chapter 12. Um, this is where we come to see that Solomon, after great prosperity, hands off the kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. And what happens? Almost it feels like in a matter of moments, all of this golden age, all of this prosperity. Rehoboam's like, man, I'm going to be even better than my dad. And he like, then splits the kingdom in half, like pretty early on in his reign, and decimates all the success that his dad had built. I don't know if Solomon is still alive. I can't remember if there's clarity on that or how people wrestle through that. But could you imagine just watching it? It's like, all of it just got ripped apart. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to die now. I think, I'm, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. Right? Like there's this level of anger, loss of control. The same is true as a work, you know, it's Mother's Day, but the work of, of a parent. I'll give you one example. Just, you know, uh, when we had our first kid, we were in a loft, so you kind of, we prepared like a corner. <laughs> but if you have a house, then you prepared like a, a baby room, maybe perchance. You paint the walls, you put together a crib, you put together a pack and play, get maybe like one of those little mobiles that hangs up above so that they're like entertained while they're falling asleep or something. Then you have the child, 
<clears throat> and he poops everywhere. I don't know if that's officially allowed to be said from a pulpit, but there it is. Uh, he poops everywhere, or she vomits every, over everything, uh, or he's chewing on the books that you supposedly were going to teach them the ABCs by age five months, right? And then they're, they're, she's drawing on the walls with markers, and then finally, they have the audacity that when you actually leave them in the room that you prepared for them, they scream at you as if you've done them an injustice. All of that is the work of a parent, or at least a taste of it. And you think to yourself, seriously, what's the point? You mothers are astounding human beings. Um, <laughs> I'm constantly learning from Allie. But here's the deal. It feels often when you come and you look at work and that reality and the fact of how much you don't have control over, you do get to the point as the author here or as Kohelet here says at the end of verse 19, this also is a vanity. In Hebrew, almost nearly most of all the words are very concrete in their idea. Like when you say a word, you have a concrete image in your mind. This is one of the few words that I've learned. Um, it is intentionally meant to feel more abstract. We've talked about it being kind of like a vapor, right? That it, you try to grab it and it just goes through your fingers. Maybe another illustration would be a mirage. You're working towards something in your workspace and you're going and then finally you think that that success or that accomplishment will finally bring the peace and the wholeness that you've given everything to and then it dissipates and you realize you've got to go further in the desert until finally your soul is so parched you've got nothing left but anger. If you try to make your success the thing that makes you okay, you'll be angry. But not just that. This cheery message continues. Uh, if you try to make success, the thing that makes you okay, then you actually be full of despair as well. A sense of hopelessness that even leads to moral outrage here in the text. Look with me at verse 20. He says, so I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair. Wow. When you lose control, it's easy to become angry. When you have to face your limits, limits that say you can't go past this point anymore, you start to lose hope. You work and you work and you work and then death comes knocking on the door and you realize you can't finish what you started or you can't go as far as you want or you can't enjoy all that you worked hard for and it meets you with a sense of despair to the point that he finally calls it a great evil. He takes the language of injustice here. It's a moral categorical issue. And I want to be clear, this can even happen with pastoral work. You know, once again, I, I think sometimes people erroneously due to old divides where it's like, well, there's secular work and then there's sacred work. And we're like, no, all work matters to God and is a part of his robust mission to care about his creation and the redemption and renewal of all things. And some of you may be thinking, Gabe, I just don't think you can get, listen. Uh, one of my favorite authors is Eugene Peterson. How many of you have heard of Eugene Peterson? By show of hands, right? Oh, look at that. Okay, physical particip participation. Good, good. Okay, um, Eugene Peterson, he's a great communicator. He's written a ton of books, and he basically summarized his preaching career this way. There was uh, a woman who would come and summarize his sermon on a sheet of paper in one sentence as to what landed with her. Every Sunday, she'd come up and say, this is what I took away. And this is a little bit of a paraphrase because I can't remember the exact language, but this was the impact. He said, I basically would celebrate when that one sentence wasn't heretical. <laughs> <laughs> Eugene Peterson, you know? 
Listen, for pastors, for every single one of us, there's a distinct gap between your intent and the impact. You send an email and it can only go so far before then it's interpreted through trauma or interpreted through theological grids or interpreted through a whole host of issues and dynamics or even I've got my own issues and my own ways of not being adequate and dynamics of communicating well, whether it be from the sermon, whether it be in an email, whether it be in a leadership, all these different things where I'm trusting it over to the spirit of God to say, you got to work because I know I'm going to screw it up. One of my old mantras of leadership was failing people at a rate they can handle, okay? Like that was what leadership was. It's like, I I know my limitations and I'm not smart enough to fake it. So I'm just gonna be like, yeah, I failed you there. That was wrong. Okay. I don't know how I did it, but I know I did it. Let's move on. Um, I want to fail you at a rate you can handle. Does that sound like a good pastoral mantra too? Okay. Okay, great. So uh, that's the deal. If, if, but if success is what's going to make you okay, you're going to be full of despair and a level of hopelessness. But not just that. Here's the third and final one. If you try to make your success the thing that makes you okay, you're going to be anxious. You're going to be, ang- and not clinically so. I'm not talking about that. And there are professionals that come alongside of us in the midst of those dynamics. But I'm talking about the reality that you just can't stop from your work. And when you do have the opportunity, the internal reality of your heart is like a hamster on steroids going around the wheel until finally its head explodes, right? It's like you just can't stop. Look with me here. In the text, at the end of verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow. This is also the language of pain and suffering. And then he says, and his work is a vexation. This has like the anger component to it. It's like, oh, I can't, this is exhausting me. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is supposed to be very picturesque of a heart coming to lie down and be held. Now, here's what's interesting. I got pretty sick on Monday and I was pretty far behind and we had a bunch of different meetings that were already pre-scheduled so I'm writing this you know message and trying to think through the dynamics late Wednesday night if anybody knows me in here I am an early bird not a night owl like I don't even know what a night owl looks like I love those worms in the morning early bird gets the worm right I love getting up early I love to greet the sun like I'm like oh wait thanks for joining me this morning son this is great I love that I hate staying up late, but I was like, you know what? I got to be thoughtful about this. It's just been one of those weeks. It happens sometimes. I'm going to work. So I'm, you know, I get done and I get this like rough kind of flow together Wednesday night and I go to bed. And I kid you not, I couldn't sleep for like 30 minutes because my heart was beating so hard. <laughs> and no, don't, I mean, that's not, you're, yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> no, but the reality is, is I'm saying that because I've got work to do. God's got work to do on me. That's what I'm trying to highlight. I'm not trying to invite pity, but I'm trying to say, I've got idols. I'm reading this and I'm like, why am I, you know, doing all this work? Because I want to be seen as good. So I'm trying to go over and above. And I'm I'm thinking, you know, there's always these mixed motivations. Yes, I want to be a good steward of this responsibility and opening God's word. But I also just really want to be seen as a good communicator. You know, all the things. And I'm sitting in there and I'm thinking about how people might perceive this message and how this might be received. And then I was this point, I was like, seriously, God? I haven't had something like this happen for like multiple months and then the week I'm going to preach on it, like I can't go to bed after I've done writing, writing the sermon on it. It's like, cool God, that's really, that's really nice. It helps my confidence, but you're, you're in it. Okay, you got it. But here's the deal, when your heart is wrapped up in something, you can't help, there's, there's a part of you where you think, okay, just 
I'm going to spend 10 min- more minutes on this email because I just really want to, or I'm going to spend 45 more minutes on this presentation, or I'm going to take, you know, another hour in this conversation, right? We, we think about these different things in the relationships, in the context of our work, because we're so wrapped up in it. But there's a moment where our limits hit. There's a moment where you don't have control anymore. And it's like that art piece all over again that you can't help yourself. Trying to just keep this liquid that keeps going out, just trying to keep it close. And you can't stop until finally you run out of juice. So hear me, you know, whether you're paid or unpaid, whether this is a work at work or a work in a volunteer capacity or a work in any shape or form, if that has to be successful for you to be okay, you won't be okay. I'm learning this in my own life. This is a journey for me. I believe in leading out of the overflow of vulnerability, just so you know. Some of you are like, I'm trying to figure out this church. What's this guy's deal? My goal is to let you know my weaknesses so that we can step into our weaknesses together and see God's strength on display. That's my hope. Um, But if you're trying to see, make success the thing that's going to make you okay, instead you're going to find anger. Instead, you're going to be full of despair you're just not going to be able to rest. And so here's my question for us. Us, me too, here. How are you showing up throughout your week? How are you showing up? How are these feelings, these realities present in your life? And some of you are like, hey, that doesn't dominate me. Well, of course not. That's your defense mechanism. No one's angry all the time, okay? And if you are, okay, we need to chat, right? But here's the deal. Where are th- where's the anger taken over? Where's despair creeping in? Where do you feel like you can't rest? Those are indicators that maybe, just maybe, you have a reordering that needs to happen in your heart and in your life. And what it comes to reveal is that you're expecting your success to give you what only God can. Or maybe another way to say it is you're expecting you to give you what only God can. And we put a lot of expectations on ourselves and other people put expectations on you as well. And part of that's just navigating life. But the reality is there, got, there has to come a point where you realize that you're trying to be God in your life. And if you don't, there's gonna come a moment, even if you are really successful and you have to give it up and you won't be able to. And you won't even be able to do a really good thing, which the author here, or Kohelet himself, it was, a com- it was common knowledge to be able to pass something on to the next generation as a gift, as being a good thing. And he cannot do that here. It's seen, a good thing is seen as an evil thing because he has a, a misprioritization of his goals in life. And who's meeting him in those needs? But I want to take a quick step back. Because you can't just read the book of Ecclesiastes in like a little pamphlet on a shelf and be able to navigate it. Here's the importance. When you come to your Bible, these books of the Bible are intertwined one with another. And really, Kohelet is processing life on a foundation of Torah, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And he's processing life, and he's actually dialoguing with some of the processes, some of the design language, some of the intuitions that are coming out of that text, and he's wrestling with it, as he is with the other wisdom literature, like Song of Songs, and Proverbs, and Job, and even some of the Psalms. They're all kind of in this dialogue, wrestling through what's the wise life led by the Spirit. Because if you go back to Genesis, what's so fascinating in Genesis 1 and 2 is we see that God did create human beings, male and female, in his image to actually go about good work in his creation. And then in chapter 2, he puts them in the garden to do good work, to work it and to keep it before sin ever enters in. This is good. We were designed and imprinted with the desire to do good work and to care for God's world and one another. And so he feels that. That actually is what I think is part of the story that Kohelet is feeling in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, where it says that God has put eternity in our hearts. What is eternity? It's a quality of life that both has a future and a past component. It's not always just looking forward, but it also looks back. And he's looking back at how God has designed us to actually go about good work. And he's feeling the friction that what happens in Genesis 3. When these first two human beings, they distrust God, their creator, they take things into their own hands. They begin to spell these lies of insecurity and they even believe them themselves and it dismantles everything and it curses the ground such that thorns and thistles come up and that's where we begin to see toil take shape, work where you're wrestling to the point all the way to death. And he's wrestling through these frictions, these tensions. Actually, interestingly enough, here in Ecclesiastes, the word for work is not a normal word. I want you to say amal. Not something you go and you used to shop at back in the 90s, okay? Say them all. You guys are Hebrew scholars. Way to go, okay? Here's this idea. It is the work, the hardship, the suffering of work in a Genesis 3 broken world. You're wrestling against the thorns and thistles. It comes with pain. It comes with heartache. And we too are broken where our desires are broken, where we often work so that we can get our comfort, so that we can get our acclaim. And he's wrestling through the tension of, I know I was made for good work, but I'm wrestling with what I really want out of my broken desires in a broken world. And he's trying to pull these pieces together. Like, how do I do this in the midst of all of this? And this word amal, it shows up eight times in our passage. That's a lot of times in a short chunk. And it actually shows up first in the very, the very first work that actually, the very first verse that introduces topics. Chapter one, verse three. Work is on his mind. Toil is on his mind. And in the midst of all of this, he's come to the, the question of like, seriously, what is the point? Just like often we may find ourselves. But here's what's great about this particular passage. He doesn't end in despair. At least that's encouraging for me. <laughs> he doesn't end in despair, and so neither do we. Look with me at verses 24 through 26. He says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. There's that word again. This also I saw, listen to this, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. And this word sinner, it doesn't necessarily mean a moral category. It just means someone who's not listening to the wisdom that's out there and available to good work well done. Only to give to the one who pleases God. 
And then even just wrestling through that last part there about the sinner having to give everything back up, it makes him think of what he said earlier. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Kohelet here, he has a brilliant observation. He kind of drops the mic. But it's not cheery because <laughs> that's just not necessarily who he is. But there's so much going on here. And this is where he lands. This is important for you and for me. He says, be okay with what God has given you to do today. Be okay with what God has given you to do today. There's a lot packed into that. A lot loaded into that statement. Because often we go chasing after success, the future outcomes of stuff, of all the work that we're hoping for. And we hope that that will finally make us worthy of someone giving us what we need, our peace, our wholeness, joy. And then he comes to a realization that actually he had misunderstood God from the beginning. The first section is him just chasing after success as if it's everything and the only thing. But here he comes to understand who God is and he realizes that God has been giving him food to eat. God's been giving him drink to drink and even pockets of joy in his toil, in his work, while he's chasing after success. You know what that means? The kind of God he comes to realize is the one that's over the world, is the one that's already been pursuing his good before he deserved it. I'm going to say that again because that is important when it comes to our zeal for success, that's often for us to feel good enough, to feel worthy of love, to finally receive acceptance. He comes to the understanding that God has been giving him food, he's been giving him drink, and actually giving him pockets of joy before he was ever fully successful. God is the kind of God who's pursuing your good before you deserve it. And it changes his orientation. He understands that these good things are from God's hand. And without him, he'd have never tasted these great things along the way. That means God's been pursuing him this whole time. And when he comes to understand that, it reorients how he shows up in the world and what he even can expect in the world. It's almost to the workaholic. God is saying, hey, bro, slow your roll. Or hey, person, man or woman, slow your roll. If God is this way, it changes the way that we can show up. It appropriately relativizes our work and it appropriately gives us a sense of peace and rest even in our work. So here's three things that kind of work out of this. If we're gonna see God actually pursuing our good before we deserve it, we see three things. The first is this, we get to embrace our human working limits. You're not a machine, a claw, trying to keep this stuff together and you're not God. You're a human, and that's on purpose. And that means you have limits. I had a professor who used to always tell me, hey, you're a creature before you're a Christian, and when you become a Christian, you don't stop being a creature. That means sometimes you're gonna fail people. That means sometimes your limits are gonna bump up against your own expectations or the expectations of others, and you just gotta be okay with that. You've gotta recognize the reality of that. Some of you may remember Brandy Johnson, who was on staff here. How would she end every one of the times she did announcements? It was, do what you can today, and what you can't get done, it'll be there tomorrow, <laughs> right? Brilliant Ecclesiastes wisdom right there, right there. And for me, I have a deep belief that the arts enrich our lives and actually form us into Christ-likeness if we engage them thoughtfully. And uh, I have the wonderful gift, and this is going to be 
intense because the artist is here in the room. Um, but I have this amazing gift of having a piece of Kelly Cruz's work on Ecclesiastes hanging up in my office. Um, someone bought this for me as a gift, and I cried like a baby because um, this was my favorite piece. I am, I'm just letting it all out. I'm a three in the Enneagram scale. So some of you are like, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. It's not everything, but it's interesting. I'm a three. So I love success, okay? So this message is like all in me, okay? But in the midst of this, this, this particular piece is called The Transience of Human Progress. And it's hanging on my wall so that when my day is done, I look up and I'm reminded that my limits are staring me in the face and I don't have to overwork to prove to anyone else that I'm more than human. I can shut it down. There's, some, there's a lot going on here, but let me give you two little nuggets. There are these little ticks that I have been told represent, and they totally make sense to me, human life. So if you think that you are like really important in life, you really just have a sample size problem. <laughs> Zoom out, okay? Zoom out. You're way too consumed with yourself, okay? Uh, each one of these ticks represents a human life. And there's not necessarily, if you notice... There are bright spots and dark spots, and they don't just go from dark to brighter. There's an element where, yeah, there are pops of goodness, and then there are pops of brokenness. And there may be something you start that someone else has to carry. What about you in your life? This becomes like a sacrament or like a, a spiritual practice for me, looking up at that painting as I step away from my work for the day to remember that, yes, I have given myself fully to this, but I need to embrace that I'm a human and I'm not the full story. I'm a part of the story, and that's okay. So embrace your human work and limits. What, what would it look like for you to bring something to your office or your desk? If you're working from home, you know, what is that, that thing, an object that can kind of speak to you of your human working limits? Secondly, surrender control of outcomes to God. If you can recognize that you're a human, and that's actually a good thing, not just an okay thing, but a good thing, and you've got limits, then you're going to have to surrender outcomes to God. You're going to have to. They were his anyway, just to be clear. Um, but now you can reckon it. John Stott, brilliant Protestant theologian, uh, preacher, Christian, when he was coming to the end of his life before he died, he wrote a book that said, hey, this is what I would summarize as like the key marker of the Christian. It wasn't independence. It wasn't showing everybody how strong you were and how you could do everything on your own. It was dependence. Relying on God to make it. Relying on each other to make it. That's the sign of Christian maturity, not going it alone. And the same is true here. We have to surrender these outcomes up to God and give them to him. There was a poem um, by a gentleman by the name of Oscar Romero from South America, and it just, it hits home for me. And I just want to share it with you. It's a longer poem that captures this. He was a Christian gentleman, um, and it's just a really good poem that I read to myself. I read and kind of ponder over and over again. This is how it goes. It's longer, so it's a couple slides, so stick with me. It helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects beyond our capabilities. 
We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference, it's important, between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. There's an element of surrender of the outcomes to God. One more thing. Not only do you embrace your human working limits and then you therefore surrender those outcomes to God, but that actually frees you to enjoy the good you've been given in your work, to be okay with what God has given you to do today. You know, we can get so consumed with these huge outcomes. We're going to change the world. God, where are you at? And changing all of these huge things. And to be clear, we're going to talk about justice even in a couple weeks too. That's a big deal. Even here for the author and Kohelet himself. But here, he sees that God has given him these little things. Food, drink, little delights in work. And isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And he answers that prayer. And Kohelet sees this and understands it and leans in. For my family, for uh, Allie and I with our three kids, um, every night we try to end with a practice before we go to prayer, and it's just simple. We end with one thing we're thankful for. All of us. Uh, and my three-year-old son, Zion, he usually says something like, playing with my cards, my cars today. And we're like, sweet. And he'll say it like for five days straight, right? And you're like, can you think of something else? But it's my cars, Dad. It's like, no, you're le that's legit. It's your cars. That's your work. You're doing it. Awesome. But just seeing that God has given us something, a taste of goodness in the day, and that it's not just something I discovered, something that I took, that someone else gave me, but ultimately it was God's hand. All of it is from his hand. James, that God is the giver of good gifts, isn't he not? He's so good, and he's pursuing us and inviting us to go even deeper. And so as Christians, as we come to this, as we stand this side of the resurrection, so Kohelet wrestling within the Jewish community, thinking through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the other wisdom literature and all of God's scriptures, and then God coming in the flesh, in Jesus, living, dying, rising again, and us as the church, empowered by the Spirit uniquely, we come with a unique vantage point not to discount what Kohelet has said here, I actually think Jesus goes deeper. He goes deeper. And he would say amen to what Kohelet is saying here as well. The difference is, in Jesus and the gospel, he makes it that much cosmically more rich. Because if Kohelet's understanding of God expanded his understanding of how he was working in the world, how much deeper do we have an understanding of God? How much deeper, if he's spoken through his prophets throughout the ages, but all the more clearly through his son, how much more clarity do we have when we come back to this and we see it through the lens of the gospel and who Jesus is? We see an affirmation of Kohelet and a deepening, deepening in its truth. And here's what I mean. The limitation of death that also was wrestled with here from Kohelet, we now have an utter confidence, 1 Corinthians 15 from the Apostle Paul, that death, where is your victory? 
Death, where is your sting? Though the work we do actually does carry through through death somehow through God's power. Secondarily, when we're ever afraid to surrender outcomes up to God, we look at God himself, the son who surrendered himself to the most excruciating form of death that looked like defeat, looked like the lack of success, and then emptied out into an empty tomb. We can say, oh, I can surrender the outcome to God because it may not look like what I want. It may not be comfortable, but in the end, it will be glorious because of who God is. And lastly, we've got nothing to prove because if God's given us his son, the apostle Paul says, why would he stop at not giving us all things eventually to those who are his and called according to his purpose? We have a deeper confidence in who God is, a greater clarity in how he meets us. Yes, even in our work, to the point that we can finally, with great confidence, say what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that's not just pastoral work. That's all work for all followers of Jesus who are pursuing his purposes, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We can embrace our human limits. And that's a good thing. We can surrender the outcomes to God, and that's a great thing. And then we get the opportunity to delight in the simple pleasures that he's provided day by day. If we have the eyes to see, and here's the other beautiful thing, because of Jesus, we do it all for someone else, and it finally becomes a good thing. We do it all for Jesus and his glory, not our own. <laughs> and that's where we find that it is no longer vanity, but a true gift for everyone who's willing to receive it. So what's really the point? You were created to do good work. Delight in the good work he's given you to do today. Let's do it.